Let's find our seats and open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We are going to finish this incredible book today. And let's pray. Father, once again, we are so grateful for your written word, for your the Holy Spirit that you put inside of every one of your redeemed so that they may be able to recall the things that Jesus said that you would that you, you open our eyes to be able to see it and to understand it that we can behold you and to know you and to love you and adore you and to worship you and so father as we come to this this passage this morning I pray that you would help us to to see your purpose, that we would be able to come under that in such a way that we would endure hardship, we would endure affliction, and do it with an attitude of thanksgiving in the spirit of hope. Work in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So we have worked our way through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we've started with the doctrine that Paul wanted the Colossians to understand so that they would be able to not just encounter and withstand, but to overcome the false doctrine that they were being exposed to by the, the Judaizers, by the legalists, by those who were uh, beholden to mysticism, those who were beholden to asceticism, and, and, and all of these things that would take them away from the simplicity and the truth of the gospel. And so he has presented the, the truth to them, and then he's given them examples as to how to implement that. So here is the here is what is right, here is what is true, and here is how you put that into practice. And then even there's, here's some ways that you can use that and demonstrate that in certain relationships. And so last week we were looking at the relationships that they would have in the home, those between a husband and wife, those between parents and children, and those between masters and slaves. And so we finished last week uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4. And again, remember that in the original, there's no such things as chapters and verses. This was a letter that was written to this church. And in order to be able to navigate and to be able to get right to a particular point, verses and chapters have been added. And so he, he dealt with masters in chapter 4, verse 1. So we're going to start now. In verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, 
so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and faithful bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So after the, the domestic relationships, Paul has got two final instructions for them in dealing with people as a whole. The first is to continue in prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. This idea of devotion is to continue earnestly. And again, this is one of these present active imperatives. So it is be earnest in this, be devoted to this, and keep on being devoted to this. It's a continuous action. Continue earnestly in prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Keeping alert, again, to watch. It's actually used with the idea of refraining from sleep. It's important enough that you not lose attention to this. It's used twice in Matthew 24 and 25 when it talks about watching, about watching for the second coming. It's also used in an instruction to the disciples in Gethsemane. So if you go to Mark chapter 14, you'll find that the, the disciples were specifically instructed to watch and pray. Now, were, did they fulfill that? No, they did not. And what happened to them? Okay, well, they fell asleep, but what was the result of that? What happens right after Gethsemane? You've got Peter, can't even stand up to a servant girl, denying Christ three times, and, you know, people, you know, really get on Peter that he did that, and rightfully so. Peter ought not to have done that. But which of the other 12 were standing up? 
they all split too. And so the point is, is that they got spiritually lazy and they end up getting sucked away. And so the idea here again, be, be devoted to this, you contend with this, you stay on this, you give up sleep in order to be able to carry on in this. And so what's the idea? Why is prayer so important? Okay, constant contact. When it says pray without ceasing, does that mean that we're supposed to walk around muttering under our breath all the time? I do that and people think I'm nuts. I'm not necessarily praying, I'm just talking to myself. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? I know it's early. It's not that early. I'm not talking until you do. Okay, so the Lord is on your mind all the time. Okay. Okay. You're never characterized by not praying. Okay, an ongoing, uh, an ongoing conversation, you, you talk, you go through and you do something else, you're reading or whatever, and you, you again, you continue the conversation. Someone has likened it to, now again, this is, this is hard because now we're in, the, we're in the era of cell phones. Now it used to be, for you younger people, there used to be a thing that hung on the wall called a telephone. And it was connected by this long cord. If you were lucky, it was connected by a long cord. That meant you could move. Otherwise, you were tethered right there. But the idea was is that the f you never hung up the phone. You never hung up the phone. The conversation was always ongoing. There may be gaps, but again, it's the idea that the, that the conversation is always there. What does that indicate when you're always praying? Yeah, there's dependence. You are utterly, look, look, are you dependent upon God for being able to live the Christian life? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're not going, oh yeah, oh yeah, something's wrong. Something's very wrong. So again, it stresses our dependence upon him. And that isn't where he leaves it. It's not just that you're praying and you're keeping alert. There's the attitude of thanksgiving. Now again, thanksgiving is based on understanding just how dependent we are on God. Now, Back in chapter 1, we talked about something. Uh, Paul wrote, and it was, it was the virtuous cycle. You've heard of the vicious cycle, right? The vicious cycle was this. 
leads to this, which leads to this, which leads back to this, and you just have this swirling effect that is sucking you down into some vortex of despair. Paul wrote about a virtuous cycle. It was He spoke about faith and love and hope. Faith looking backward in time and, and seeing the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God in the past. And that is both with the things that are recorded in the scripture and the things that we have experienced ourselves in our Christian life. You'll find this in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So you have the look back, which then leads, because we see that God is trustworthy and faithful, that leads to love in the present to where we can look outward to others and be looking to the needs of others. And seeing that God's faithfulness again demonstrated, that leads to, the, to hope for the future because God has been faithful in the past, he's being faithful in the present, we can trust him that he's going to be faithful in the future. And so you have this, this faith leading to love, leading to hope, and you have this upward spiral. You have people who are dramatically encouraged in their faith because they see God at work consistently. And again, that gives rise to gratitude and to thanksgiving in the heart. So, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. So, Paul has a prayer request. Paul, what is it that you want the, the Christians at Colossae to pray for you for? in its opportunity, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, I have been stuck on these couple of verses now for several weeks, pondering what Paul asked for and, in another way, what he didn't ask for. What didn't Paul ask them to pray for? Release. He's not asking them, listen, would you please pray for a divine jailbreak so that I can get out of here? Not. Let me ask you another question. You have a friend. Now, this friend is a very prosperous businessman, and he has a large family. And in rapid concession, he loses all of his kids, and his business crashes. So his prosperity is gone, his kids are gone, and not much long after that, he gets a debilitating, incredibly painful disease. How would you pray for your friend, Job? That he would be steadfast in the Lord? You know what? You are miles ahead from most prayer meetings in any church in Christendom. Because what would be the standard prayer request in a church prayer meeting for Job? 
healing. Physical healing. What's the problem? There is a problem with that, by the way. When the focus is asking that God would heal of his physical ailment, what's the problem? Not conscious of the purpose. Why is Job physically suffering? Okay, God allowed Satan to bring it. It's a lot more than that. Testing. Look, Job has got a drastic spiritual problem. He's got a spiritual cancer. And God's got to dig deep to expose it. Why is he wanting to expose it? So he can remove it. So Job can come face to face with it. So that Job can turn from it and turn to him. That's not happenstance. So when Job's friend, when, 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 when people have the meeting, Lord, please heal him physically, they're asking God to short circuit the very thing that God is using to accomplish his purpose in Job's heart. And by the way, not just Job's. Yours and mine too. Again, we have this idea, and, and it, has, it has crept into here, this idea that when you are walking with Christ in, in, the, in the right way, and you are honoring him, and you are serving him, that somehow that means that we're going to be free from difficulty. The deeper that is, the deeper you've got to cut. And so, and believe me, I'm thinking about people that we know and love. They are physically suffering. We need to stop and consider as to how God is using that, not just in their lives, but in the lives of others as well. Why are they sick? Because God's brought it. Now, why has God brought it? I don't know. But I know who does. God knows. And he's going to work it to their good because they love him and they're called according to his purpose. And he is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And in the midst of their affliction, what are they going to find that they possess? that they have. They have the grace that they help, the grace that they need. They're obtaining mercy and they're finding grace to help in the time of their need. So, how should you pray for your friend Job?
Gunner. Perseverance, you said something at the very beginning, I'm vapor locking on what it was. It's, I'm getting old, I'm sorry. That's, that's right. You started off with, pray for the peace that passes all understanding. Okay, now. Okay, now, when we pray for the peace that passes all understanding for somebody, there was, and that is a promise, right? That is a promise. But it has a condition with that promise, right? What's the condition? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the last part of that. What's the first part? Be anxious for nothing but in all things, right, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be known unto God, and the peace of God. So again, you can encourage him and you can pray for him that he would not be given over to anxiety and to fear. And in fact, when you talk to him, you can encourage him in that way. So that he would be able to experience the peace of God in his heart. What are other things that you can do? Somebody said something over here. I think it, perseverance. What's perseverance? Enduring with what attitude? A grateful heart? There's a word that often... Um, Consider it all joy, my brethren, right, when you encounter various temptations? Okay. The, the idea is cheerful endurance, not the sullen look, look. What do we communicate to people when we walk around with a sullen look on our face? Okay, so the idea of when, when we have a sullen look, it communicates dissatisfaction and, frankly, blame for God. That is not bringing honor to him. That is casting reproach on him. God's not acting in a way that satisfies me. So, therefore, I'm going to be upset 
and I'm going to be demanding, and frankly, I'm going to punish God because he's not doing things as I think he ought to do them. See, again, our interaction with him, that's why when you go back to the idea of praying and praying with the attitude of gratitude, that demonstrates that I trust that God is sovereign. In fact, not only is he sovereign, but he is after my good, and he's given me the grace that I need in order to endure with a cheerful heart the affliction that I am in. Again, when you go back and you talk about, we're all, we are wonderful with the idea of we overwhelmingly conquer, right? But what are the things that we're overwhelmingly conquering in? They're not pleasant. The tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the peril, the sword. All of those things. That is what you're overwhelmingly conquering in. So again, we need to look past the immediate relief. Now, you know, when someone has cancer, perhaps, you know, again, fact is, unless Jesus comes back in my lifetime, I'm going to die. That's going to happen. And it can happen quickly. It can happen slowly. But it's going to happen. The same is true for you. At some point, I'm gonna ha I'll get a sickness. I'll get a disease. And it is the vehicle by which God is going to take me home. What do I know? And, and you know, this isn't an announcement. I don't know anything that you don't know. But the fact of the matter is, if I hear those words, stage four, terminal, inoperable, if I hear those, then what does that tell me I need to start getting ready for? I better start getting ready. And so, you know, the fact of the matter is, I will have a final lesson in life to teach. I'll have a final lesson for my kids, how to die and how to die well. It's a lesson that I have been fortunate enough to be taught. Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie is saying that she heard a sermon one time in which, you know, you're, you're walking through life and you have a cup and the things that you're putting in, if you're putting in patience and endurance and love and trust and hope that well, all of a sudden when you, when you stumble across something, what comes out are those things and not discontentment and, and struggle. Paul focuses on contentment, Brian. 
Brian's point is there's another layer, another level beyond uh, even Job's sanctification, and that's that God is glorified. Is God glorified in death? He is. How do you know that? Does the Bible say so? It does. Where? Andrew? It will. It will happen. I remember reading this as a young man. And by young man, I, I think I was a teenager. We, we remember when uh, Peter's gone fishing after the resurrection, and he looks out, and Jesus is on the beach. Jesus is on the shore. Peter doesn't wait for the boat to land. He jumps out, and he's swimming. And he gets to the beach, and he meets with Jesus, and, and Jesus, you know, Peter, do you love me? And all of that. At the end of that, Jesus looks to Peter. Truly, truly, this is in John 21, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. God isn't just glorified when he, when he miraculously heals somebody. When you watch somebody, especially someone who dies well, God's glorified by that. I, I, I can remember, I'm thinking of one in particular, and because this is being recorded, I don't want to use a name. I can remember visiting someone in a hospital, young lady, you know who I'm talking about, and she was a nurse. She had to know what was going on. And yet, in the face of death, she was calm. She was peaceful. She was serene. And you think, you know, here's this huge storm. And frankly, she's like Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Because she's not troubled by that. Now that happened probably 10 years ago. I can still picture that encounter in my mind. And so, again, this idea here and what Paul demonstrates for these people is don't get tied up in your circumstances. Paul wrote to the, the Philippians what? He had learned to be content in all situations. 
he's demonstrating that here to the Colossians without actually saying the words. Why is he there in prison? Because that's where God has him. And if this is where God has me, then I want you to pray that I would have doors opened for me here where I am. Because I want to be useful here where I am. Because God's got me here. And so Paul's concern is the message. He wants to get God's intended audience with the word of truth. Now, then he goes on, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. So now, here's how we deal with people who are in the body, who are in the church. This is how we pray for them. This is how, again, go back and look at Paul's prayers for other people. What do you see him praying for for them? That they would be made complete, that they would be made mature in their faith. That, they, that these different situations that they encounter would drive them to where they would know God more fully, that they may love him more fully and worship him rightly. And so that's what the praying now when it comes to outsiders. Walk in wisdom. Now, does it honor God if you don't pay your bills? Does that honor God? No, it doesn't. Does it honor God if you are characterized by grumbling and complaining? Does that honor God? No. Thumbs down is right. We need to live in such a way that demonstrates that, in fact, we have the living God residing inside us. We should be acting in such a way that people look at us and they see some family resemblance. And I'd better be resembling God rather than resembling that other guy. Right? So, walking in wisdom. A life that brings honor to Christ. This idea of taking... Uh, of Making the most of the opportunity literally means to buy the time. In Ephesians 5.16, it's redeeming the time. You're buying it. You're, when an opportunity comes along, you take it. You don't let it float by. You, you deal with it now. Radar's up and running. Your life, your conduct matches your profession. But he doesn't stop there either. It's not just the silent witness. It is also the verbal witness. And our speech is to be such that it is gracious, winsome, appropriate. Again, not gossiping, not backbiting, not complaining because what do those things demonstrate are you content are you demonstrating contentment if you're always trying to tear somebody else down it doesn't and guess what unbelievers pick up on that 
They hear that. They're not stupid. They are foolish because they reject God's truth. But they're not stupid. They can tell when someone's, you know what? That guy is a hypocrite. Why? Because he says one thing and he does another. He points his finger at this person and doesn't realize it. You, know, you all heard, got heard this when you were kids, right? Whenever you point your finger at somebody, you've got all these other ones pointing right back at yourself. That's why if you ever watch Carolyn and I, a lot of times when we're, when we're having one of those discussions, it's we're pointing like this, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> when you live, again, how, how common has the idea of thanksgiving been in this book? It's all over the place, isn't it? What's Paul communicating by that? Okay, go back to chapter 3. Um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to, through him, to God the Father. So this idea of thanksgiving, it's all the way through this book. Paul's a thankful man. What's he, what does he say to virtually every church or person that he writes to in the very beginning? I give thanks to my God for you because he's a thankful man. So again, when you're thankful, it is going to be very difficult for the attitudes that lead to whining and grumbling and murmuring and complaining and gossip and all those other things. It's going to be hard for those to take root. Anne-Marie. Emery's point is, is that um, it's easy to put on a show. You know, people talk about coming here to church. Look, anybody, anybody can put on a good face for a couple hours on Sunday morning. It's, the fa- it's your family, it's your wife, it's your spouse, it's your husband, it's your kids. Those are the people, they live with you, and they've got a pretty good idea as to whether or not you're putting a mask on on Sunday morning or if that's really the way you are. And so, again, that this idea of putting on the, 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 the new man, that, that, that's, not, that's not a once-in-a-while occasional type thing. Somebody was saying this morning that I should have an overcoat because it's raining outside. Now, when do you wear an overcoat? When it's cold outside or when it's raining, Right? Do you wear the overcoat in July when it's 110 outside? No, you don't. It's for certain purposes. These kinds of things that, you're, that we're to clothe ourselves with, no, 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 that's every day. That's like putting on socks if you're a guy. It's something that we wear all the time. 
All right. Nor we're thankful. Right. Okay. okay, so Brian's point is that not only does thankfulness characterize the believer, the lack of thankfulness is what characterizes the unbeliever. So again, who are we in Christ? We're the new man. The old guy, he's dead. So I'm to take off the clothing that he wore and I'm to put on the clothing that is appropriate for who I am now because it again is going to demonstrate who I am, who you are. And again, it's, it's these, these ideas of we think of, you know, the, uh, the huge event, you know, the huge crisis of faith and they do come. That's not where we demonstrate faithfulness and, and gratitude, frankly. It's in all the little things. It's in the normal run-of-the-mill day. And so, again, we need to be stepping back. If, if I persistently do not have not, not just a smile pasted on my face. That's not what I'm getting at here. That's not what Paul's getting at here. What he is getting at is a heart that is so rooted in the trust of Almighty God that it overflows with gratitude for, to him for what he's done. It's the idea of I can trust him in whatever it is that I'm walking through right now at this moment. And when you have that calmness, that serenity, that's based not on just having blinders on that ignores everything. In fact, it's the opposite. I can fully see all these things that are going on here. But I know that God is giving me the grace in order to endure cheerfully everything that I'm here, and he's going to accomplish his purpose, and not just in me. You know one of the reasons why we suffer affliction, right? Just one of them. I'll pull one out. 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God, our, you know, our, the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may comfort others in their affliction with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted by God. So the things that we endure, that is so we are able then to help others in the same way that God has helped us. So again, it's not just anything that comes to me is not just about me. And it's not just for me. It's going to spill out. It's going to hit others. Same thing with you. All right. Paul had a supporting cast. Yeah. Alan. 
All right. I don't know how many of you could actually hear what Alan said, so I'm going to try to recap. The idea of the gracious speech, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Jesus told his disciples that in the day when you are given over, when you are turned over to be arrested, to be mistreated, don't worry about what you're going to say because what you're going to say is going to be provided to you by God. Uh, he and Joy were meeting with some uh, unbelievers last night with a couple of couples, and after eating, he asked a question, may I ask you a question, which, if you know Alan, there's, there's something coming after that, right? And so he asks a probing question that then leads into an hour and a half discussion of the gospel. So there's an example of taking advantage of an opportunity. And so... Uh, you don't have to wait necessarily for the other person to just on their own ask a question. You can bring it up. Do it in a gracious way as, as Alan did. But again, you have the ability here to, to, to bring up the truth so that you can put it in front of another. Andrew. Do you want to say what the question was? This person had previously exp uh, expressed that uh, there's no heaven, there's no hell, and Alan just asked a question that brought that right to the forefront. Is this truly what? Is this what you truly believe? How did you get to this point? And now, and, and again, notice the first question was a yes/no question. The second question was not. How did you get to this point? That's a narrative. So that is intended. Um, that's an interview question. You know the difference between interview and interrogation, right? When you're interviewing somebody, you ask questions that are intended to make the other person talk. They are revealing information. They're revealing how they think. They're revealing what they think. Interrogation, you flip that. If you're interrogating somebody, you don't ask narrative questions. It is they are answered yes, no, because you are trying to bring the, the spotlight right down on top of them to tell you something that is not in their best interest in one way, but in their best interest in another. Okay, Paul's supporting cast, Tychicus. Tychicus is another one of these guys you hope to have them in every church because these guys are the utility players. You can plug them in in a number of different points, and they're going to be able to get the job done. Now, Tychicus, you would think, well, gee whiz, okay, he's carrying the mail. Yeah, 
he is in fact carrying this letter to the Colossians. He's also carrying the letter to Ephesus and he's carrying another letter to Philemon. This guy is carrying three books of the Bible to deliver them. But that's not all he's doing. He's not just the mailman. He's also going to tell them, look, here's what's going on with Paul and Aristarchus and Epaphras and all the guys that are there in Rome. So he's going to say that, but also he is going to encourage them. Now, he also later, if you look in 2 Timothy, when Paul is asking Timothy, listen, come to Rome. I'm going to die soon. Would you please come, bring the parchments, pick up my cloak that I left in Troas. Or I don't remember if it was Troas or Mylene. Bring that stuff to me, would you please? Now, where's Timothy at the time? And what's he doing? Timothy is in Ephesus. He is basically leading that church in Ephesus. Paul doesn't want to take Timothy away from the Ephesians because, again, this isn't like you hop on BART or hop on an airplane and just jet on over. He, Timothy's going to be gone for months to come to Rome. So he sends Tychicus. Tychicus is going to take Timothy's place while Timothy is in Rome. So again, Tychicus is one of these guys that he, he, he's the ultimate pinch hitter, spiritually speaking. So he, Paul can take him and plug him in. Again, this is how Paul, Paul is in prison. He, does, he can't just get up and go. But he's got guys he can send. So Titus, Titus is heading over to Crete. Timothy, Timothy's going over here to Ephesus. He can send Tychicus. He can send all the, Epaphroditus. He can send all kinds of different people so that he can be in more than one place at the same time. So again, now, who knows a lot about the life of Tychicus? Yeah, neither do I, because there's not a lot given. But he's the kind of Christian that you want to have in your church. It's like Barnabas. Barnabas never got the press that Paul did. But boy, I tell you, having Barnabas' reputation is priceless. He was the son of encouragement. Okay, so you got Tychicus, you have Onesimus. Onesimus, you'll learn about in the book of Philemon. Onesimus is a play on words because Onesimus' name means fruitful. And he was not fruitful for his master, Philemon. He ran away. Gets to Rome, runs into Paul, comes to Christ. And Paul sends him back. That's the letter of Philemon, is about Onesimus and how Philemon should deal with him. So he was one of them. Aristarchus, he's described as a fellow prisoner. Now, he was a traveling companion of Paul. You'll find him back in the book of Acts. And so Aristarchus is with him. 
There's no record that Aristarchus was actually arrested. And remember, why is Paul imprisoned in Rome? Did the Romans arrest him? Were the Romans charging him? No. He appealed to Caesar. That's why he's in Rome. So there's no record that Aristarchus is actually there because of something that Aristarchus did. And keep in mind that, again, prisons in the first century are much different than our prisons today. You weren't fed by the state. You were dependent on other people to bring you the things that you needed. And the, the, the sense here is that Aristarchus is basically voluntarily being in prison so that he can minister to Paul. You have John Mark, the guy who, who when the going got tough, he got, he got leaving, right? He's on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and all of a sudden, this isn't what I signed up for, and he goes home, and Paul didn't take very kindly to that. Now, Barnabas was a little more forgiving. Now, it turns out, well, there's a reason that Barnabas might be a little more forgiving. Besides the fact that that's just the kind of guy he is, right? Because once upon a time, Paul was the outcast. Nobody trusted Paul. Hey, this is the guy who was persecuting us last week, and now all of a sudden he says he's on our side? Nobody wanted to come anywhere near him. Who was it who went and got Paul and brought him in and vouched for him? It was Barnabas. Now Mark is also his cousin. Paul and Barnabas end up splitting, right? Paul doesn't want to have him go with them. Barnabas and, and Mark, John Mark end up going over to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from, and ministering there. Now, John Mark didn't stay. He failed. He didn't stay failed. And again, when you get knocked down, you get back up. Peter denied Christ. It doesn't get much worse than that. Peter didn't stay there. He repented and got back on the straight and narrow. So did John Mark, and, and, and Paul came to see that. In fact, he came to value John Mark. You've got another guy, Jesus, who is surnamed Justice. This is the only mention of him in the Bible, and you hear nothing about him other than the fact that he's from the circumcision. That's all we know about this guy. Yet, he was an encouragement to Paul. So, if you're tempted to think that, you know what, I am a nobody, in the body of Christ. There are no nobodies. There's no nobodies. There may be people who are not well known, but they are just as important. This guy is an encouragement to Paul. This guy helps Paul keep going. Then you have Epaphras. Those guys are all Jews. They're former Jews. Now you have Epaphras. He's likely the guy that planted the churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And he prays. Paul talks about, listen, this guy prays for you. And how does he pray for him? 
he prays like Paul does. He's praying that they would be mature, that they would be mature in Christ, that they would be perfected, and he labors in prayer. So again, here's this guy again. We don't know a lot about, a lot about Epaphras, yet he's held up as an example. You want to pray? Pray like this guy. You have Luke, author of Luke in the book of Acts. You'll be able to see in the book of Acts when Luke was with him because all of a sudden the narrative shifts to we and us. And so there's a lot of times when Luke is present with Paul. And the last guy on that list is Demas. Now Demas isn't as bad as Judas Iscariot. But he bailed out too. He abandoned Paul. Forsook the truth. Because he got sucked up by the cares of this world and the love of riches. And by the way, that hadn't happened at this point. So he's there with Paul. And that's really the sad thing, really, at the end of the day. Here was a guy that endured a lot of hardship. And it ended up being wasted. Because you find at the end of Paul's life, he writes to Timothy that Demas had forsaken him. Archippus is probably Philemon's son. Now, it's not spelled out specifically what his ministry is, but Paul tells him, listen, you stick to it. That's your job. You keep at it. Don't give up. Don't walk away. And it's kind of a, a standard Pauline ending. Paul writes this at the very end. He was dictating this to somebody who would write it down for him. And at the end, he says, hey, listen, I'm going to put my signature on here so you know it's me. Remember my imprisonment. Now, just really quickly. Paul didn't ask the Colossians to pray for him that he would be released. But the fact of the matter is, he knew that that's what some people were asking for. Right? If you go to the end of the book of Philemon, Paul writes to him, prepare a guest room for me, for I expect that I'm going to be released through your prayers. Okay? Paul's not asking, but he's aware that there are people who are asking on his behalf. So please don't get the impression that it is somehow sinful or wrong to be concerned about someone's physical, emotional, spiritual conditions. It's not. But it's not to be the primary focus. The primary focus, Lord, would you please accomplish the work in this person that is intended through the circumstances where they are. Give them the grace that they need to be able to cheerfully endure. Give them the patience. Help their faith not to fail. Be more concerned about their spiritual condition than their physical. If you can help bring relief to them, bring relief. What did Jesus, Jesus had stuff to say about that too, right? 
I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, you came and visited me. I was sick, you came and visited me. I was naked, you clothed me. Not all in that order. And when did we do that? If you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, some of these things are a whole lot easier to say than they are to do. It is, I, I can, I actually can't even imagine what it was like for Job. And yet that was not without purpose. You were bringing about your purpose in him that he would be able to see the, the pride and the arrogance that had taken root in his heart. He did not think of you rightly. He was ascribing to you things that were not right about you. And yet, you were being gracious to him by bringing him to the point where he could see that and end up with the confession that he made. My eyes, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself and have repent in dust and ashes. And then you restored him. And so, Father, help us that we would live in such a way that we speak of you and we speak of you often. We speak in a way that is like you. We act in similar fashions as you did. We aren't characterized by grumbling or complaining. Instead, we're characterized by graciousness and thankfulness, gratitude, trust, faith, love, hope. And Father, I pray that you would help us to look for opportunity and then take it. That we would proclaim your truth to a dying world. Thank you so much for Paul. Thank you for his example. Thank you that you have given us all of this written down in our language that we can understand. Help us never to take that for granted or to somehow lose the incredible blessing and gift that it is. Thank you that you have revealed yourself, that we may know you. Help us to know you aright, that we may obey you rightly, that we may worship you rightly, especially now as we come to our main worship service. May the words of our hearts bring praise and honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.